This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right. Uh, you probably heard about this. Uh, it's an interesting, uh, and really, should we be surprised? Uh, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, point that, uh, you know, uh, distracted driving. A lot of people getting really upset about fines and this sort of thing until, of course, uh, we got stats that said that distracted driving kills more people than impaired driving does. All of a sudden, uh, the attitudes started to change. Are we going to have the same sort of thing here? Or is uh, this a scenario where uh, it's not really designed to do much more of, of anything other than draw attention to the fact that lots of people are putting their heads down and walking across a busy street. Uh, an Ontario MPP is wanting to create a distracted walking law. It would see pedestrians fined for looking at their devices. Uh, and, and I think which take, what takes the teeth out of this is that if you start the call before you enter the street, uh, then you're okay. Um, I'm not sure how that all works. Uh, let's bring in Brian, pa- uh, Brian Patterson. He is with the Ontario Safety League. He is with us now. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem, Scott. Happy to, happy to take part in the conversation. And interesting, we're having a, a conversation about distraction on uh, Halloween. Uh, what are your thoughts on this law, Brian, or uh, proposed law, I should say? Uh, I think what we've got is uh, um, uh, a very good uh, process right now where we've uh, simply suggested that uh, when you take risk, roadways, and fatalities, we have to find a way to mix the engineering, the uh, education, and the enforcement. So that's a traditional model. Uh, I I, I find this one most interesting because the, the problem is the engineering, that you can sort of continually look down and text and watch cat videos or do whatever, while walking into traffic. We've had fatalities and related issues. And when I look around the world, some of the solutions, I think, are uh, sort of speak to the fact that uh, um, other things have been tried. I mean, the ones I, I find most interesting, they wrap uh, foam padding around the streetlight posts wow. and people are walking into them. So uh, they could bounce off without injuring themselves. Not sure that's the right solution. Uh, How big a problem do you think this is, Brian? Uh, Because many have said that there just aren't stats on this, saying that although pedestrian accidents are up, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has something to do with somebody being on a device. What we're uh, we're seeing is people traveling into traffic and across intersections, distracted by looking down, face down at their uh, devices. Uh, You can go to any major intersection in the middle of the day near a school in, in a workplace area and you'll see it happening consistently and you'll see how it impacts with uh, uh, vehicles and cars we've had fatalities one of the one of the shortfalls is we record the fatalities uh, and we use that data and of course it showed a significant issue but what we uh, what, what we don't often include is those who become injured so uh, you know, walking into traffic and getting banged at 20 kilometers an hour or 30 kilometers an hour in many cases has life-changing uh, uh, injuries from, you know, hips and legs and, and bones and concussions. So I think uh, the, the riskiness of the activity um, requires some of the education. I can't believe people don't know that uh, you shouldn't walk into traffic, but like impaired driving people know you shouldn't uh, do it and that it's risky 
but we uh, we see that high risk activity and the the the, the fine is just uh, a tag on at the end. I mean, the, the big key is to raise awareness about the risk and deal with it. And you know, I'm uh, I'm startled uh, with the uh, with the uh, uh, rollback that we've seen. Uh, some of it's just uh, in, in a lot of ways ridiculous. Are are the stats there yet, Brian? And and I'm and I'm just playing devil's advocate here. And reason being is that once uh, distracted driving deaths surpassed those of impaired driving, it really seemed to resonate uh, with drivers. It really seemed to, uh, I, I think people, a lot of people were surprised at that, that just how bad it was, because everybody just assumed, well, I can do this, it's not a problem, I can manage both of these tasks. Uh, but then once they saw the stats, uh, then, and, you know, obviously, um, the way we think about impaired driving, and then to put texting and driving in that same uh, category, I think a lot of people were surprised. Do you think the stats are there yet? And it may take until those stats are there, and people are getting, you know, hit or injured or, or, or you know, God forbid, killed or anything. Before those stats are there, people just aren't going to get it. I, I think people get it when they when they focus on it. I mean, I, you know, I mean, Darwin is not the head of the Ontario Safety League. <laughs> the people who suggest that, oh, oh, well, the incentive not to do it is getting bounced off a car. Uh, yeah. so we already have an incentive not to do it. Ridiculous. And I think uh, it is an it is an invasion of technology that we're that we're seeing that we didn't see five or six years ago. So you've now got massive streaming, you've got uh, uninterrupted uh, viewing, and you you just have to go to any intersection. I think we're going to, uh, with the help of some of the school boards who are very uh, concerned about it because they uh, they see the problem of people being hit. It's not uh, it's not just the fatality, of course. It's the it's the hits and the near misses that you see on a daily basis. I mean, we want to deal with distracted driving because it kills people, but it also leads to a lot of the complexity on the roadway and a lot of these near misses. So uh, uh, we're not suggesting that any that uh, pedestrians are at fault. Uh, this isn't, as one weird pundit suggested, a, an, a criminalization of walking in Ontario. It is a high-risk activity that involves roadways that we deal with uh, on a regular basis, and I think we've got to keep... Uh, uh, keep uh, doing that and evolving it. Uh, I uh, the the question that came up with regard to if you start the phone call, could you not stop talking for the 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 twelve seconds or fourteen seconds it's going to take you to cross the roadway? Yeah. And I think that's something that uh, if it goes forward to uh, second reading will likely be uh, removed from the uh, uh, from the bill, and that we deal with the uh, uh, with the activity and you know. Um, uh, police officers have better things to do than deal with this. Um, uh, the the bill itself allows parking control officers or bylaw officers uh, and awareness campaigns. So there's a lot there's a lot of positive in there for something that is emerging uh, as a problem. I think the stats are certainly uh, the canaries in the mine are telling us we got a problem here. And we have to look at it. I'm not sure whether it's just the change in. Uh, uh, accessibility to your uh, uh, to your um, smartphone or the perception that you have to be on it all the time. That's what we dealt with early on with distracted driving in a vehicle. And now uh, technology has moved. Majority of new cars have 
Bluetooth act, uh, connectivity and people are acting in a different manner. But uh, uh, going forward, I think we, uh, we're we going to see more more bills like this across the, the country. But I'd rather uh, raise awareness than start paying to put wrap mattresses around telephone poles hmm. so people don't walk into them. What about uh, you brought up hands-free while crossing or, or, you know, certainly made reference to it. Is that the answer here? Very similar to cars. Just you, you got to be eyes up. Got to be, you can be talking, you can do what you want, but you got to be hands-free. You got to be, even though you don't need your hands to walk, I guess, got to be feet free. I don't know. Where do you draw the line? No, no. I, well, well, I think uh, uh, on this uh, on this uh, um, uh, issue, it does seem you know I, uh, I I sort of see an awful lot, particularly young people, uh, with their buds already in uh, and may well be listening to music or in conversation or uh, 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 etc. But I think what uh, what uh, what we want people to realize is, you know, you've got uh, crossing the roadway is uh, should be your full full focus time. And uh, and then get to the other side uh, safely. Uh, you know the, the the other thing I heard that I just think is again in the uh, in the in the, uh, places a lot of people are at risk. The perception that as soon as the light turns green, I have the absolute right to walk into the intersection regardless. Yeah. They don't look whether there's a car turning or not turning, and somehow that uh, makes me a car hater or a car lover. Or I, it's ridiculous. We want people to move safely around the community and the best way to do that is aware and focus. If you're on a if you're on a bicycle with sound canceling headphones on so you can listen to great jazz, you're uh, you're not going to pick up on the sounds around you that uh, may be life-saving in nature. It's just a, the the technology. I watched the guy while we were preparing for this. He was on FaceTime on his phone in a holder like a GPS. Yeah, carrying on a FaceTime conversation while riding along University Avenue. I, I, I'm not sure, you know, if you build it, yeah. some bozo will find it, I think, is the, uh, uh, is the process. But, to um, um, uh, you know, I don't think this is a cash grab. You know, that's another thing that they, when people say it's a cash grab, it's a cash grab. I've done run, ride-alongs with officers. You don't need an excuse to, for a cash grab. All you have to do is stand on a, a street corner and point, and you'll catch people. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. So, I mean, you know, when people say campaigns are cash grabs, are you kidding? They don't have enough time to do all of this. There's, it's so easy to catch people doing this. Well, in fact, at the, at the press conference... Uh um, uh, the uh, you know it was yet another attack on the police that even if they were given the right to do this, they would just abuse it and uh, <laughs> yeah. profile people. And I'm like, I mean, I've, I've lived in Ontario uh, majority of my life except uh, for my uh, service in the army, and I I, I just don't I, I just cannot see uh, where these uh, positions come into play. I had somebody tell me that I was promoting obesity and diabetes. Yeah. I, uh, I was. I had that written down. You know, we're trying to get people out of the car, and you know, now we can't do business on the phone. Criminalizing walking. I yeah. think. Yeah. The reality is, we got to get everybody uh, better focused, and we're working on that. And you know, we we've done shows in the past, Scott, where you know uh, it, it seems some changes or some campaigns always bring out the feeling that it is somehow connected to cash. Uh, uh, you know, if the police are pulling over distracted drivers for the weekend or the, the big four, as the commissioner likes to say. Uh, uh, I tell you, you do, as you've done, a ride-along, and you say to yourself, I can see why it's scary. Okay. <laughs> it 
is. You know, he I, is. You know, I took a took a position uh, and and uh, wanted to see how many people were on their phones or how many people are walking through, and, and you know, walking without focus is, uh, on the on the rift is really what uh, what I think this addresses. That it doesn't criminalize walking, but it does sort of if you act in a way that places either you at risk or could put other people at risk. Uh, as, uh, you know, uh, just focusing for the, and I don't know how long it takes to cross every intersection, but a, a lot of the ones I walk across, it's about 20 seconds. I'm pretty sure even my dear mother would wait 20 seconds <laughs> for me to safely arrive on the other side. So that I but probably only your probably only your mother would put up with that. Nobody else would. That's what I'm thinking, Brian. Uh, Brian Patterson has been with us, Ontario Safety League, talking about uh, the Ontario MPP wanting to create a distracted walking law that would see pedestrians fined for looking at your devices uh, as you're going across a roadway. Brian, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks again, Scott. You have a good time. And it's Halloween, so 100% focus for the next five or six hours as these young... Uh, people enjoy the event and without injury or uh, risk. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, lots of people talking about uh, the, the strike at Ontario colleges. Many thought that uh, we wouldn't even get this far, let alone three weeks into one. Uh, but that certainly has been the uh, the situation. The only good news in all of this is that uh, one of those weeks was a reading week. So uh, that being said, they're not as far behind as it appears. That being said, it's a very anxious moment for those that are in Ontario colleges. So what is, what progress have we made, if any? Uh, and, and what really is this all about? Let's bring in Kevin McKay, member of the college faculty bargaining team, sociology, uh, sociology professor at Mohawk College and vice chair of the divisional uh, exe- executive for the college f- uh, faculty and is with us now. Kevin, thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Scott. Kevin, people starting to get a little angry now, starting to get a little antsy. Uh, many didn't think it would go this far. Uh, and a lot of t- people are having a hard time wondering what this strike is all about. Is Can you shed any light into what demands are and why this is happening? Sure. Uh, first of all, I think I would echo that uh, faculty as well. Uh, we're hearing on the picket lines. I mean, they're they're committed to, to why we're out here, but they're also surprised that it's uh, it's gone as long as it has. And they'd like nothing more than to see a resolution. I can, I can say that as a member of the bargaining team as well. But I think the issues we're out for are important enough that um, faculty are willing to do what it takes. Um, you know, we're really looking at a system that has been chronically underfunded for so many years. I mean, Ontario is the lowest level of post-secondary funding out of the entire country. Uh, students pay the highest tuition. I mean, it, it's just been, it, it's not working. It's not set up right. Um, and they're trying to run a system on contract faculty. Uh, it's not fair to the contract faculty who are running around trying to make ends meet, working two or three jobs. And it's not fair to students who don't have access to those faculty. So I think that that issue is not going to go away. And I think that's why, um, you know, things have come to the point that they, that they have. And, and clearly the employer council just doesn't seem to think that this is um, worth uh, talking about, negotiating, or even even considering, and I think that's unfortunate. Um, and I think it's that stonewalling which has now seen us three weeks in. 
So uh, at one time, this sort of started with it being ratios, the ratio of full-time to part-time. Uh, I'm now reading out of the Toronto Star. The colleges and unions are about $250 million apart on wages and staffing demands, with the union seeking 50% of jobs to be full-time, uh, given the growth in contract positions. Is this about employment? We've had this discussion before. Is this about employment or is this about education? Well, I don't think you can separate the two. And I'll just, I'll give you an example. I think what folks don't realize is how completely out of whack the Ontario colleges are from other uh, education systems in terms of staffing. So just looking at on, in Ontario, right, if you look at the elementary level, um, it's about 77% full-time um, in terms of the, uh, the teachers. At the secondary school level, it's about 73% full-time. Um, if you look at our colleagues in BC colleges, again, it's about 75% full-time. Ontario colleges are exactly the opposite. And so where, where education and staffing meet is, do you have enough full-time faculty members in the classroom to ensure stability, to ensure program quality? You know, there's a lot of things that full-time faculty do that part-timers simply aren't paid to do, right? So they're the ones developing curriculum, revising curriculum, coordinating programs, liaising between programs and industry partners. And, you know, when, when that number of people who are able to, uh, to, do, to do those tasks dwindle to the level it has, it puts strain on the whole system. And, and this is why, why we're seeing uh, what we're seeing in terms of the strike action that we've been forced to take. 50-50, we think, is the bare minimum. I mean, it still puts us out of whack when you look at all those other um, education systems, but it's directly related to quality. Uh, I, I've talked to colleges, and they say that it's, it's, it is closer to 50-50. You know, I, I remember, I think, perhaps it was you I was speaking to that, that said that the average was 30 full-time to 70 part-time. Yeah, that's uh, in terms of positions, though. Like, so in terms of actual bodies, where, where there's some, been some debate is teaching contact hours. So that's basically what percentage of courses are taught by full-time or non-full-time. And I know it is confusing for folks, but that's why we've just focused on a fact that the College Council has never disputed, which is that if you just look at all the faculty in the system, over 70% of them are on contract. So who wants this? Who's, who, who's, who's bringing kids' education to a grinding halt over this? Is it the part-time teachers? Is it the full-time teacher? Like, again, a, a lot of people will have a hard time understanding that this is all about full-time versus part-time and not something more like wages and, and, and typical union stuff. I mean, well, you know... I mean, uh, yeah, but it. like, so at what point have we ever said it isn't about the issues I've just laid out. I mean, I think, you know, at a certain point, people just have to understand that these are the issues that are on the table. I mean, if you think about what's in it for faculty, full-time faculty are losing thousands of dollars. They don't get that money back, right? And so, uh, there, and there's there's nothing in our main... Uh, how, how is full-time faculty losing thousands of dollars? I don't understand what you're saying. Okay, well, we're not getting paid right now. I think you, you right. appreciate that, right? So if you're not paid for three weeks... You know, the, there you go. It adds up, you know, and, and so, and you know, students lose the time. We're losing the wages. Uh, so this is this is serious business for faculty. This is not about putting money in faculty's pockets. It never has been. We've never said that, you know, it's always been about precarious work and then also how we make decisions in the colleges, right? So that's the sort of the, the part about are we able to maintain quality in our courses, are we ever going to have the same sort of collegial governance model? So, are you year? saying that Ontario colleges aren't don't have as high a quality as the rest of the other colleges because they don't have these ratios? 
I'm Wh- saying, which, which, by the way, the ratios are, are very much disputed depending on who you talk to. No, no, they're not. I'm sorry, Scott. Uh, the 70-30 that I'm quoting, uh, you can take this to the college's council, and they will not dispute that. If you look at bodies in the system, the number of positions in the system. I thought we talked to somebody. Is, I thought we talked to somebody actually at Mohawk that said theirs was closer to fifty-fifty. Okay, but so we're talking system-wide versus college by college. Mohawk happens to be one of the better in the whole system, but there's some colleges that have eighty-six percent contract. Where <laughs> are where are they? Who are they? So uh, Collage Boreal, for instance, uh, has, I believe, it was either 84 or 86% uh, contract. A lot of the big GTA colleges are, are you know, close to 25 30% uh, full-time, right? All the rest are contract. So system-wide, that, that figure has never been disputed by the College's Council because they simply can't. We're using their numbers. We calculate that. And again, you got to think about it in terms of every other system. Why is every other system the exact opposite? I'm telling you why. It's because you need stability. You need continuity. You can't just have a revolving cast of people every four months coming in to teach courses, sometimes uh, a week after the course has started. And I've actually experienced that as a part-timer myself. That's a true story, right? You can't run a system on that. And I'll tell you why it's run so far is because you've had full-time faculty throwing their bodies on the grenades of underfunding and poor management decisions for years. They're burnt out. They're starting to relinquish coordinator positions because they simply can't do it anymore. And that's why this issue is, is, has risen to the surface. That's why it's not going to go away. You know, and the College Council needs to understand that. People need to understand that. You, we can't just wish this issue away. It isn't just about uh, faculty wanting more money. It's not about that at all. It's about we need a stable system. Uh, uh, students need a stable system. The people of Ontario need a stable system. And it's going to take more money. We can't be the last in the country anymore. Look, how can we justify that? How does the Premier justify that? That's a great question. And, I mean, that's what we're trying to get people to ask, you know. And, and, and I, I don't know. I, you know, this is, we, we keep trying to put this out. I mean, at least let's get us to the national average. Like, to me, I think that's a reasonable thing to, uh, to, to suggest, that um, the Ontario government should fund post-secondary in Ontario to at least the national average, the average that the other provinces do. And I'm telling you, Scott, if we came close to that, that $250 million over three years to hire more full-time faculty, we wouldn't even be talking about it. We wouldn't even be sniffing at that <laughs> because there'd be, there'd be ample funding to do uh, what we needed to do in the college system. What, but, do, what do other parties feel? How do they feel about your position? Uh, obviously, you feel this current government is not answering your needs. You know, what we've, what we've found is massive support from all across the education sector um, and, and beyond that. I think a lot of people realize that the issue we're standing up on um, is a very important one. It is about... I thought the Liberals, though, were the education party. I mean, I don't understand why they're not helping you out. Well, you know, that's a good question. I, I think that, um, you know, we're, we're asking the same question ourselves. You know, I think that they do need to put more pressure on the on the College Employer Council to uh, to address these issues, or also to indicate that, hey, listen, funding will be available to address some of these some of these issues. I mean, that could shift things radically at the table. Ultimately, whose responsibility is this? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I think, you know, you have a number of different parties involved in the system. Each one of us has to take some responsibility. Um, I think the College Employer Council, uh, you, you know, uh, remember when we talked earlier, there are 
zero cost items on the table that they have completely refused to talk about, you know, academic freedom being one of them. That's on the college's council, just being intransigent. They have to take responsibility for that. The province has to take responsibility for thinking they can run a system on the cheap, you know, and they, they, they simply can't do that. They have to take responsibility for that. Actually, has to take responsibility, too, for the fact that, listen, we know that a strike is it's the last ditch, right? We, it's something we, no one does lightly. We haven't done it lightly. We know it's causing uh, distress to students. But I think, and I can tell you from talking to people on the picket lines, the faculty believe strongly enough in these issues uh, that, that we're not going to back down. We need to get a fair deal, and we're willing to give, but there's been zero indication on the other side that they're willing to give anything. Uh, we're hearing the phrase back to work legislation now. Uh, it, it sounds like uh, Premier Wynne is feeling the heat. Uh, your thoughts on all of that? You know, we would prefer this to be negotiated at the bargaining table. Um, you know, but having said that, you know, we, we can't control what the provincial government does. Um, and we're also quite confident, I think, in our, our issues that if they were to go before an arbitrator, uh, that they would understand where we're coming from, that we would have the, you know, the facts and the data and the arguments um, to support what we're talking about, because we're not just, you know, we're not just making the situation up. There's, there's a lot of research and data and evidence. Um, so however this gets resolved, I think we're confident that we're going to see some much-needed changes to the system and that at the end of the day, it's going to improve the quality of the system. It's going to improve the student experience. Uh, is there support for back-to-work legislation? Uh, you know, like I said, I think most, uh, you know, most unionized workers think that we should be able to, to, you know, negotiate a deal with our employer without having legislation. So that, that is, that is our, 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 our thought about that. But like I said, having said that, we, we can't control what the province does. Um, you know, we understand the province is under pressure too. We think they should be. I mean, we think it more appropriate that they put pressure on the council to get back to the table. That would be preferable to us. But again, you know, uh, as, as, as this wears on, as, as the semester gets in real jeopardy of being lost, I think we are going to see some moves um, uh, by the province. Uh, when will it become in jeopardy, Kevin? At what point uh, are we past the point of no return? You know, I would say much beyond this week. I, I think it, it's very, very serious. I mean, what sometimes people forget is that, you know, all of our courses can't just be um, condensed. So we have folks in uh, programs, for instance, a lot of apprenticeship programs, uh, trades programs or technical programs, and it's hour for hour. They are mandated um, uh, for their certification at a certain amount of instructional hours. Those can't be condensed. Um, we also have, you know, professional students, whether it's your nurses, your paramedics, who, um, you know, they have timed um, uh, provincial exams they have to write. They have things that they have to be prepared for um, in a certain amount of time. You know, these things are already uh, becoming uh, really, really serious. And, uh, you know, beyond beyond the third week, uh, I don't know. I really don't know if we can pull it out. And I'm telling you, we haven't heard anything from the colleges on this. Um, you know, they apparently have a plan. What, what, what can the colleges do at this point, Kevin, without the government stepping in and offering more money? They could come back to the table tomorrow. So, again, think about this. The zero-cost items, there could be negotiation on those. Uh, you know, job security for, for the contract folks, at least, so they can predict their workload uh, past one semester, no cost. Academic freedom, no cost, right? Collegial governance, even, minimal cost. So, I mean, the, they could do that tomorrow. We could start negotiating on those things, and then if if we came to an impasse, we could agree to put whatever is remaining to arbitration. 
I mean, we've done that in the past, and and we would be the faculty bargaining team would be ready to do that. You know, give me an hour to drive to Toronto, and and we're good to do that. Uh, do you feel let down by the colleges or by the government? Uh, by a bit of both. Uh, I think let down in the sense uh, of of years of underfunding by the provincial government. Um, let down by the colleges council because, like I said, there are things, Scott, that could have been it could have been off this table easily. They could have been off this table with no more expense to the people of Ontario. And and that the College Council stonewalled on those issues, to me, it almost makes me think that they were they were trying to push us out. It has that feeling. Because otherwise, why wouldn't we have just negotiated those easy items that we could have? But there was never, from day one, there was no indication that they wanted to do that. Um, and I've, I've found that process quite... Uh, quite eye-opening. Uh, obviously, this isn't the first uh, situation with this government uh, and the education system. Um, it seems in the last few years, there's been lots of attention paid to uh, uh, to helping elementary and secondary uh, teachers. Uh, some have said too much. Uh, do you feel that they're getting more than you are and that you guys are getting shortchanged in all of this? When we're talking, spending so much time talking about elementary and secondary, we're not talking about colleges. I mean, that's an interesting question. I do think, I mean, I don't think that... Because during that period, they were very much pro-education, and, and people were yeah. saying, no, you're giving away the farm here, uh, whereas they've seemed to close the door on you guys and doctors. How, yeah. how, do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I think, like I said, I think that's an interesting point. I, I wouldn't say that um, that what our secondary and elementary teachers have been asking for is at all um, untoward or out of whack, but I do think that colleges have been off the radar. Um, I, I do think that the system has been allowed to be uh, run on a shoestring and underfunded for so long that now I think people are a little bit surprised when you know the lid is finally being being taken off the situation. So I do think that there hasn't been enough attention paid to the colleges. Um, but I also think that to a certain extent, Scott, this is this is a bigger question about are we going to fund our public services effectively in this province? And again, I just I don't see why one of the wealthiest provinces in Canada has to always be last in terms of funding these services, right? And uh, and so I think to a certain extent it's a manufactured crisis. It's it's unfortunate that we're you know we're having to play it out the way we are because we have no other choice. But really, at the end of the day, is we just need to resource this thing effectively, you know. And I think that would that would solve the uh, the issues that we have. Do you think you're just feeling the pinches of a government that doesn't have any money left? Uh, you know, that's part of it, but that's partly because we've been cutting taxes on the wealthiest Canadians and on corporations for the past 20 years. So the government has created its own revenue crisis, you know, uh, and, and the unfortunate thing is, uh, you know, who wants to pay more taxes, right? No one does. But, I mean, those cuts have overwhelmingly benefited the, the, the very upper income levels, right? They haven't really benefited the middle class that much or the, or the, you know, the working class. And so that's the situation we find ourselves in, is if the government throttles its own revenue stream and then cries poor, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense at the end of the day. You know, either you, either you want to have a civil society and you want to have public services and you want to have high-quality education, or you don't. And I think most Ontarians think that we do want high-quality education system, high-quality schools, um, hospitals, right, social services. So so we have to look at how are we going to... Well, a lot of people are comparing this to the healthcare system. I mean, people are just looking at these systems knowing that they're bleeding money and there just doesn't seem to be any solution down the road. Well, you know, I, I think the solution is, hey, we can always be more efficient. I don't think anyone would argue against that. 
But I think at the end of the day, we have to realize we have lost billions of dollars in government revenue over the years that we used to. I mean, the tax rates that we had back in the 80s and 90s when our economy was growing just fine, I mean, uh, they're, they're a shadow of what they were now. And so that's just billions of dollars in missing revenue. So you think this is about greater taxation? Um, I think it's about uh, more fair and equitable taxation. Uh, you know, I don't think that, that working people and middle class people should pay another penny in tax. I don't think they need to. I think what needs to happen is the very highest <laughs> income earners that have had their tax rates slashed in half over the past 20, 30 years, that they should pay more their Wait a their, second. Their Any, anybody who'll tell you who's making a certain amount of money is paying like 54% in tax, so in income tax. So if anything, the tax rates have gone up with the last government. Um, with the last government? No, I don't think or with so. Or this, with this government, with the Trudeau government. I mean, people who are who, no, who are no. in the highest income bracket are paying over 50% tax. No, no, they're not, actually. No, they're actually not. It's. I think it's... Um, Oh geez, it's it's under easily under forty. There has been a steady decrease, actually, and you can people you know, who are making over two hundred fifty thousand dollars don't pay fifty four percent tax. No, not federally. No, no, they don't. I mean, there, there's maybe you're thinking about combined federal and provincial. I think that's tax. yeah, 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 for sure. But you know, and, and, and listen, I mean, you know, people people. people <laughs> I'm gonna have to let you. I'm gonna have to let you go with that, Kevin, because we are completely out of time. Boy, it depends what hair you split here. Kevin McKay, member of the college faculty bargaining team, sociology a sociology professor at Mohawk College, and the vice chair of divisional executive for the college faculty. Uh, they want more money. Uh, the province says we don't have any. Uh, I guess we have to figure out why and where uh, and how we move forward. And I guess at the end of the day, it's all about getting everyone out to vote. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Canadian politics. A lot of people upset with uh, the Trudeau government and uh, them nipping into our pockets recently in regard to taxing this, that, and the other. There was even a suggestion that they could tax your company discount if you were lucky enough to get one. Uh, of course, uh, the government said that was just the Canada Revenue Agency going rogue and uh, it had nothing to do with them. But a lot of people are complaining that uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau is, uh, especially small business people, whether you're a doctor, a farmer, or a plumber, or a carpenter, or whatever, that some of their benefits, uh, some of their um, uh, deductions are being eliminated. Uh, well, of course, uh, Finance Minister Bill Monroe is, uh, or born uh, Bill Morneau rather, is taking advantage of uh, certain loopholes that uh, he, being an extremely wealthy man, uh, contributes. People are having a hard time grasping this guy reaching into our pockets when he's taking advantage of the same sort of loopholes, making money that you and I can only dream about, including uh, one of his companies paying him, uh, one of his shares paying him uh, 65,000K a month. Uh, Let's talk about this also simply because it looks like other liberals are doing it, but conservatives too. Andrew Scheer's use of tax shelters is hypocritical, says a liberal MP. Who do we believe? Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, also contributor to the Washington Times. He's with us now. Michael, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. So this all started with Bill Morneau closing loopholes that you know small business people were taking advantage of. Right. All, all while he's doing the same, then you know finger pointing. There's other liberals that are doing it, and now Andrew Shear is being accused of taking advantage of lucrative tax shelters. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who do we believe here? <laughs> well, it's a pretty big question, but look. You can look at it this way. If you're going to look at it from the way that the government 
uh, is trying to sort of promote things or the way that they're trying to create a communication strategy, if we're going to look at them, it obviously doesn't help that Bill Morneau, the finance minister, plus three other ministers as well, including Dominic LeBlanc, who's the fisheries minister, all have what's called a conflict screen in terms of the way that they're operating their investments. So in other words, they haven't gone for what people really use, which is the blind trust. A blind trust is where you basically take all of your assets, all of your earnings, and you put it into a blind trust, which you have no ability to see, no ability to experience, and no knowledge, in theory, of day-to-day operations of it. Paul Martin, for example, with Canada Steamship Lines, CSL, did the same thing and put his entire company and all his earnings into a blind trust. A blind trust is obviously not perfect, Scott, in the sense that, well, if you give it to your children, if you give it to friends and others, they could still theoretically speak to you. Like, there's no 100% proof safeguard against all of this. But a blind trust is the best way to at least ensure, in theory, that the person who has all this wealth, has all this money, has all these properties and companies, can't really, in theory, have any access to it. The problem is that Morneau and several other ministers have taken a step back which is this conflict screen, which creates, shall we say, an invisible barrier between you and your money, for example. But it doesn't mean that you can't sort of overlook it a little bit and sort of see what's happening. It's not a perfect way to sort of handle things. So the federal liberals are obviously trying to evade this line of questioning as much as they possibly can, because they basically say, well, look, the ethics commissioner, Mary Dawson, gave everyone the choice to decide between A or B, I can tell you when I worked in the Harper PMO, we also had a choice between A or B. The difference was that more Tories chose the um, blind trust route than they actually did the conflict screen route. But you make a good point in the sense that Andrew Scheer has recently come into play because of his decision to get involved in what's called an RELP. And the RELP, which deals with real estate, or it's a, a real estate limited partnership, basically entitles you to write up off up to, I believe, 50% of your initial investment in some sort of a real estate holding. Now, you obviously have to have a certain amount of net worth or an income above $200,000 a year. So most of us couldn't obviously do it. Mm-hmm. But, what, but what they're arguing is that Mr. Shear clearly has enough wealth to get involved in one of these issues, a not, a, a basically a way to put money into a tax shelter, which benefits him during his time in, in public service or as the leader of the opposition currently. And they're saying he's being hypocritical because, look, he's criticizing on one end the way liberals are doing things, which I think most of us can sort of accept the fact that it's incorrect. They should have picked the blind trust option. Yet here he is doing something completely different that benefits him. I guess in the end, ultimately, in a long-winded fashion, nobody's really in the right at all, Scott. It's the rules need to change and dramatically change if we want to ensure that people who go into public service and basically serve us as politicians are putting their money in their affairs in the proper order or at least creating proper order for everything that they have so that we don't have these discussions on a regular basis. So no one is actually in the right. It looks like everyone virtually is in the wrong. Whose responsibility is to change it, and will that ever happen? The responsibility directly is twofold. A, it should be the federal government who basically recommends to the ethics commissioner or the ethics commission to change the rules in terms of the way that we 
govern our MPs, govern our cabinet ministers, govern staffers in the way they basically handle their business affairs when they're in Ottawa working on behalf of the people, so to speak. So that's on the one hand, it should be done there. But the ethics commissioner, Mary Dawson, is certainly within her own right to make these suggestions, to create papers, or to simply create some sort of a proposal for the federal government to consider to change the rules. There are plenty of people who could actually do it, Scott. It's a question of who will. And because the rules right now benefit a lot of the people that we have elected to Parliament, including people obviously who have a fair amount of wealth, a fair amount of business holdings, and don't want to be you know, completely beholden to the laws and rules and regulations of the land that they can't know anything about their, their affairs whatsoever, I think they have to make a choice. So there's two sides that can actually create new rules, but I think it also has to be up to politicians to decide that if they're going to be involved in public service and if they're going to represent the people, then they have to tidy up their own business affairs and not leave these sorts of either tax loopholes or things that are just hanging on a regular basis. You know, it's fine to sort of go after the low-hanging fruit and say, well, look, this is horrible, this is awful. If the rules don't change, we're going to just have these discussions over and over again. Maybe it's time we make a decision to change them once and for all and make it more solidified that when people come in, whether they have great wealth or a little bit of wealth, that they're covered one way or the other. Uh, will this discourage the those in those positions from taking on government positions because it, it's it's too distracting to their personal affairs? Uh, is this about gaining an advantage or just making it appear like there is no advantage and everything's neutral? Well, in the first place, I mean, this has been always the argument that people have been using since the ethics rules were changed about 10-odd years ago, that it would discourage good people from entering politics because they don't want to necessarily create a whole series of blind trusts and move their money away, or a, or a screen plan of some sort. They basically, the rules as they currently stand are obviously there to benefit people, to ensure that they don't use their advantage, use their power, use their cabinet ministry, if they're sitting in cabinet, to, their, to help them further along their business interests and their net wealth. I get that part of it. The problem is there are a lot of people who have been successful in business, for example, who look at the rules that exist in Ottawa and kind of say to themselves, why do I want to go through this? Why do I want to make a whole mess of my own affairs when I have it in a relatively clean manner right now or I have everything sort of organized in a way where I know where everything is. I'm not going to put dip my hand to pot A, B, C. Why do I need the government to tell me this? On the other hand, what can you really do? If you're going to be a representative of the people, Scott, you have to actually go along with some rules, and you have to ensure that certain advantages that exist, even if you never take advantage of them whatsoever, are dealt with in a proper manner. That's why blind trusts, screen plans, and other things were put into place to hopefully ensure that people weren't just taking advantage of the system. But on the other hand, you're just going to lose a lot of good people, no matter what, because they just don't want to go through this mess. I don't think there really is a middle ground. Either you realize the way the game works when you go into Ottawa beforehand and make the proper accommodations, or you just decide to yourself that no matter how much ambition I have or how much I believe that public service is an important part of the way life operates on a day-to-day basis, a government operates on a day-to-day basis, that I just don't want to go through this. That's the real issue, and I think that a lot of people have sort of hope that they could circumvent the rules or make it a little bit easier on themselves 
even when the ethics commissioner became stronger, say, during the Harper years, starting in 2006 on. But the rules of the game are different. The way we look at politics is different. The way politicians operate in certain ways is different. And if we look at historical situations where people definitely took advantage of the situations they were involved in, and not just in Canada, we're talking about the States, Europe, and elsewhere, I think that unfortunately these things have to be done. And if it actually discourages good people from running, well, in some cases, so be it. I can't let you go, Michael, without asking you your thoughts and what has transpired uh, in the United States over the weekend and in the uh, last couple of days. Obviously, on Friday, news broke that something was coming down. Somebody was going to be indicted. Uh, yeah. You know, smart gamblers, I guess, guessed at, uh, at Manaford, but probably sure. did not see the George uh, Papadopoulos uh, angle of all of this and somebody, of course, uh, perhaps uh, flipping and informing them for weeks prior to all of this being announced. How do you process all of this? Yeah, I I mean, I think that for Donald Trump right now, while there's obviously no direct link as of yet, we have no emails, no sort of ties, the 2016 presidential election, Donald Trump or meddling with Russia in any of these things, we do have some obviously some issues indirectly that the president has to be aware of. A little less so when it comes to Paul Manafort and his associate Richard Gates, only simply because Most of the 12 charges that the two men face, including conspiracy against the United States, which is a pretty large one. Wow, yeah. It's not collusion, but it's not terribly far away from collusion, um, because collusion is not a federal crime in the U.S., so that was the best way they could do it. All of those basically deal with tax evasion and business problems and earnings. Those are things that Donald Trump can obviously sweep away with his hand, saying that, well, when Paul Manafort, for example, worked for me, I didn't know about any of it. What about the company Trump keeps, though, and the vetting process? I mean, come on. Yeah. Can, 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 gee, I didn't know. Is, is that a good enough excuse here? Well, that's, what he's, that's really his only excuse right now, that these were years ago, and that's, you know, I was not aware of these things. Unfortunately, as silly as it may sound, that is the best way for him to handle Manafort and Gates. The difference, however, is when it comes to George Papadopoulos. This was the one no one saw coming. No one is aware of the fact that, A, Mr. Papadopoulos was actually interviewed by the FBI, but more importantly, nobody knew that he was guilty of lying at the same time and was charged on October the 5th and now apparently is helping investigators to some degree and we'll sort of see where it all goes. The difference here, even though Donald Trump has sort of said that a person he once said was an exemplary fellow is now a liar, a person who had a a volunteer position wasn't important, etc., he can't really get away with it too much because that was an advisor for during the 2016 campaign. And while no one is suggesting that Donald Trump was, uh, was actually attending meetings with Russian officials, the fact that Mr. Papadopoulos lied about the whole train of line, well, basically the line of thought between A to Z, between how they sort of maybe dealt with people from Russia, looking at emails that seemed to indicate that there were meetings with Russians, and what ultimately uh, happened at the very end, that's much harder for President Trump to get away from. As I said before, there's no emails that show that he was actually there at the meeting, and that's his saving grace. But if they ever do find things, or if they try to flip Paul Manafort and Richard Gates and offer them immunity for information that they know, and suddenly they spill the beans on things that we never knew about, UI, the listeners, etc., that's where everything changes quite dramatically. So it's actually Papadopoulos' guilt 
from what happened a few weeks ago and the fact that he sort of lied about the whole train of thought involving possible, um, basically, meetings with Russian officials, that, I think, is actually much worse for President Donald Trump than what Paul Manafort and Richard Gates have done in their business enterprises, Mm. because Manafort and Gates may actually not know anything. And that's the first tip of the iceberg in terms of the way Robert Mueller's investigation is going, to see if they can, quote-unquote, shake down these two, and if they get nothing, they'll keep moving on. Papadopoulos lying, who was an advisor for Donald Trump, albeit not the most senior of advisors, but he was certainly there, I think that bodes far more ill for Donald Trump than anything else. And simply because of the unknown. Nobody knows what they've talked about. Nobody knows where this is going beyond that testimony. Well, that's just the key to it. You still can't tell from even the things that were released. And NBC News was among the first to release all the transcripts related to Manafort, Gates, and Papadopoulos. I've surfed through them all, quite frankly, Scott, and I don't see any direct tie to Donald Trump as of yet whatsoever. But there are little things hanging around that in terms of when we get to the point of disclosure and we start talking about what they may know, what they may have, or quite frankly, what Robert Mueller has found in his investigation, that's where you can start connecting the dots and sort of say to yourself, ah, this thing which makes no sense to me here is actually connected to, say, a line of thinking we heard about that the media was bringing up, you know, about a year ago. That's where I think everything happens right now. So to be perfectly honest, this is only day two. This is the tip iceberg, and most of us are still in the dark as to how all this connects. And there's lots of people speculating this is the end of Donald Trump. This is, you know, this is quite, you know, this is the smoking gun. There aren't any smoking guns as of yet, Mm. but there are some guns that are, you know, showing a little tiny bit of smoke. And that's what the president... important is it for the president to put down the device and and not tweet? Well, look, no lawyer worth his or her weight in salt would ever tell him to have tweeted that early. He literally treated, what, I think between 30 minutes to 60 minutes after everyone sort of found out that, you know, they saw Paul Manafort going into the court of law. When that happened, suddenly he had to come out and say something. This is a problem you and I have talked about on a different level for a long time. This is a problem, quite frankly, I've talked about on radio and TV with many others. It would be better for the president of the United States to basically say, I'm staying off Twitter, especially in cases like this, because whatever I say could eventually incriminate me, or simply I shouldn't be getting involved in matters that don't directly affect me at the present time. So I would certainly think that people around him, maybe they can't control him. I mean, Ivanka Trump, his daughter, apparently claimed that she could to some degree. I mean, I guess no more, because the way Donald Trump has been tweeting let's say, the past three to four months, clearly no one is following him and no one is paying attention. He's sort of his own man in that domain. You would hope that Donald Trump would at least gain some sense that, okay, I threw out a few tweets now, I'm going to let things simmer for a bit, I'll see where they go, and then if I need to defend myself in a week, two weeks, a month, I'll throw something out then. But no, no lawyer or no legal team would ever recommend that Donald Trump get involved in this because right now he isn't directly involved. He's indirectly involved, which is very, very different. It would be wise if he would stop doing it. The problem is, as we know, Scott, and I think most people know too, he's just not going to stop. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good day. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.